Hi, it's Bethany. Before we get started today, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you all about our amazing new Patreon project. Our little band of podcasters likes to eat, and we also like to have new equipment so we can bring our voices to your ears. So we are currently redoing our Patreon tiers. Now, when you sign up, you can get special magnets, mugs, and totes to support science for the people. We are also doing a specialty birthday card. Sorry, this is not about your birthday. It's not that we don't care about your birthday, but anyway... It's a birthday card, and it's about the birthday of a scientist that we think is worth knowing about. If you sign up to give $5 or more per month, we'll send you the special birthday card with specialty art about an important scientist who history has kind of overlooked. We'll also offer a special podcast about them. Who's the scientist? That's the surprise. To get the card, you have to sign up by May 15th, which is almost here. So get on that. The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're coming down with a nasty case of the plague. Well, okay, not us. We'll be talking with Lauren Kassen-Sackett about what happens when prairie dogs get the plague. But first, we'll speak with Boris Schmidt about whether rats during the Black Death actually got a bad rap. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brickshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science in the Public. And I don't know about you guys, but when I think about deadly apocalyptic plagues, and I mean who doesn't think about deadly apocalyptic plagues, I think of the bubonic plague, the disease caused by the bacteria Yersinia pestis. Okay, maybe you think about the zombie apocalypse, but I think about the bubonic plague. Why? This was a disease that caused death on a scale that many of us cannot even imagine today. It came in three pandemics through history. The second of those pandemics in the 14th through 19th centuries included the time known as the Black Death. At its peak, it killed a third of the human population in Europe. Yes, a third. 33%. If you're sitting on a train or in traffic around people right now, look to your right, look to your left, and contemplate your chances. And I don't know about you, but when I learned about the Black Death in school, I learned that it was because people were concentrating together in cities, and those cities were disgusting and full of rats. Those rats had fleas, and those fleas gave us plague. Get rid of the rats, and you get rid of the plague, right? Well, sort of? A new study suggests that it might not have been the rats and their fleas that spread the most plague. Rather, it might have been the humans and their fleas. To walk us through this bizarre disease love quadrangle is Boris Schmidt, a quantitative biologist at the University of Oslo in Norway. Boris, thank you for spending so much time to talk about your paper with us. Happy to do so. Thanks for inviting me. And I wanted to start with a little background on the plague itself. Um, it's caused by one bacterium, Yersinia pestis, but there's more than one way to suffer from the plague. And only one of those plagues is one of those ways is actually bubonic. Can you talk about the two modes of infection here? Yeah, so there's two major modes and there's a few smaller ones. I'll just go to the bigger ones first. So bubonic is indeed what you get from being bitten by a flea or maybe by lice or by a tick. If that animal carries uh, the bacterium, it might basically inject it into your uh, underneath your skin or in your tissue. Uh, the bacterium then migrates to your lymph system. That's sort of a drain system that's in your whole body. And you know lymph nodes from the things underneath your, uh, underneath your jaw or in your, uh, groin area. So it would migrate to those places and multiply, and multiply there until you have like these huge buboes, which is where the bubonic plague got its name from. Just sort of sitting underneath your skin where the bacteria was very highly concentrated. 
at some point it would break through your whole body and then uh, you would likely die from the disease. So that's the bubonic plague. Then there's also pneumonic plague, uh, airborne plague. You get that uh, by chance often. If you had already have bubonic plague, it sometimes uh, escalates into the pneumonic form, gets into your lungs, and then you start coughing plague like like the flu, uh, except that it's really, really lethal. So well, with bubonic plague, I think about 40% of the people died that got it. Um, with the pneumonic one, basically everybody dies. And uh, once you start coughing, other people might pick it up and get it into their lungs directly. And uh, then they have uh, they also have the pneumonic plague and they can spread that further. Wow. So and, those are the, and there uh, are so, minor forms of transmission too? Yeah, they're, they're quite a bit minor. So you can get plague by eating uh, plague-infected meat. Um, and you'll still die, but it's uh, yeah, usually called uh, gastrointestinal plague because you get it uh, from the intestinal tract. So that's cases like eating camel or eating marmot, uh, animals that have can have plague naturally. And if you eat those, you might get plague, uh, but it doesn't really spread on further, uh, except when it gets picked up uh, by fleas again or something. So it's not like uh, norovirus or diarrhea where it spreads through that mode. And then another one would be septicemic plague. And that is basically that by chance when you get bitten by a flea, uh, the bacterium immediately starts replicating in your bloodstream. And you're also, you have no chance of surviving when that happens. That just goes too fast. So those are the two minor ones, but the, the bigger ones are indeed the bubonic ones that get spread by flea bites and the pneumonic one that goes through the air. I don't know what it says about my personality, but when you described gastrointestinal plague, I was like, well, yeah, people probably don't get that because most people aren't cannibals. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. But uh, yeah, lots of animals have plague. So in the wild, uh, there's at least 18 or 20 different species of rodents that are uh, like reservoirs of plague in wildlife animals. So this is marmots, gerbils, voles, yurts, ground squirrels. Not all of them and not everywhere, but quite many of them can have plague. And we've talked about those different modes of infection, but there are also different ways of actually acquiring that bacteria, um, different kinds of bites and different kinds of transmission. How? What are the ways that a person can acquire the plague? Uh, so I guess the main distinction there is from uh, did you get it from another human, like to a human flea bite? Did you get it from another human uh, over the air? You might have gotten it from an animal over the air as well. There's some cases in the U.S. every year where uh, cats become plague infected by eating rodents somewhere outside and then coughing into their owner's face. Um, cats, and then you, cats. <laughs> and then you can also get it from uh, rat fleas. So if uh, rats have plague and they die, the fleas go look for another host and they might find uh, nearby humans. So the, it's still going through flea bites of through the air mostly, but uh, uh, you can compartmentalize it also by like from what other species uh, did you now get your plague. And that was actually one of the things I found especially interesting about your recent paper is that I did not know that there was more than one kind of flea and that fleas are picky eaters. <laughs> yeah, that is, <laughs> it's amazing. There's... Uh, Especially in in Russia and in uh, China, people have been uh, monitoring plague for a long time because they have it actually quite a lot on the on the territory, far more than in the uh, U.S. is quite common now as well, but not as much as China and Russia. So there's huge studies in trying to quantify what species of flea, when, uh, what rodents, and when. 
And plague is not a really picky disease, so it, it can spread to something like 280 rodent species, 280 flea species, something like 80 or 90 mammal species that we know of. So the, the disease will spread whenever it gets the opportunity. So I wanted to talk a little bit about those fleas, because I think when people think of fleas, they might think of, I don't know, dog fleas. But mm -hmm. there are lots of different kinds of fleas. You mentioned 280 different species. Can you talk a little bit about the eating habits of fleas and why that matters? Yeah, I'll try. It's it's not something that, that I know too much about. We've, we've looked up as much as we could for the paper because we needed to know quite some. But um, what I know from the wildlife, it's more like you have two different types of fleas. Ones that are, when they get hungry, they help on a rodent uh, eat and then drop off. And then mostly these live in like burrows or nests where the, where the rodents will frequently be back at home. And there's other species of fleas that sort of sit on the rodent and stay on there as long as possible while eating it and only leaving it when the rodent, rodent actually dies. So you have this distinction between like nest nest living fleas or rodent living fleas. Um, human fleas, like we talk about in the, in the paper, are they're called human fleas because we found them on humans first, but they sit on cats, on dogs, they sit on all kinds of animals. So the, some fleas are more specific to one species of animal and others are more generalist, but they might still have a name like a cat flea or a rodent flea or a human flea. So you always have to sort of dig in and look up if you want to know for sure. Even if the name suggested it's just a human flea, it might be a widespread to many animals. And originally, we, when people talked about the bubonic plague, they were talking about rat fleas. And they kind yeah. of fingered the rats and, and the fleas. How did scientists originally pinpoint rats and their specific rat fleas as carriers of bubonic plague? So the exact, exact history, I wouldn't be able to give you in that detail, but it's it's been a well-documented parts where this, this happened in, nine, I guess, early 1900 or late 1800 century. There was an epidemic ongoing in uh, in China and in India, so the start of the third plague pandemic. Uh, Europe was very worried because they remembered earlier plague pandemics, but they were also just really investigating together with uh, Chinese uh, scientists what was happening. How did this disease actually spread? Because back then they didn't know anything, just that people were dying of it. At some point, uh, I think it was Alexander Yersin himself, but other people might have been involved as well. And Alexander Yersin is the one that now, uh, Yersin is Yersinia, so the, he's actually the name of the disease now. Um, they were looking at, uh, at rats and they figured out that if you had one plague infected rat and you put it on top of a cage with another healthy rat, then in the morning the healthy rat would also have plague. And then slowly, they, oh wait, they figured out it's the fleas between these rats that would actually be able to move from cage to cage and infect the other rats as well. So then um, during the beginning of the third pandemic, they figured out it was rats and there were all sorts of measures to try and limit the rat populations in towns and cities. And they would also be able to find the bacterium in these rats if they would just look for them in, in cities. Um, they also found places where it seemed not to be the rat and they didn't really know what was happening. Um, so they had suspect, uh, suspicions like uh, it might have been other kind of fleas, maybe it's not rat fleas here. But in quite a lot of cases, it was rats that they found. And then but soon people did start to suspect human fleas. I think so, but uh, I'm not that clear about... Uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, the rat fleas is the one that they had this largest uh, component of the plague in, in their minds for the longest of time. They saw some other aspects of uh, of uh, plague outbreaks where they couldn't relate it to the rat fleas. 
but they were thinking it was rat fleas mostly. And for much of the third pandemic, it seems to have been true. It's It was not as lethal as the second pandemic. There was like, normally it was just 1% rather than 33% of the people around you dying. And they would find dead rats as well preceding uh, the outbreak in humans. So and the, why didn't people suspect human fleas? I mean, the rat fleas were there, obviously, but why yeah. Why didn't people think, oh, well, you know, humans have fleas too? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, it might not have been. Uh, it might. It might not have been human fleas back then. The, the thing to—that's something we don't know that sure actually. But what we think now is that if it is human fleas, you could get way bigger outbreak than outbreaks than you actually got in uh, in the third pandemic. So it might not have been back then a time where human fleas played a big role. And that's something we try to figure out now as well, just to see uh, um, is the differences in temperature, average temperature important between the, the Middle Ages and uh, the third pandemic for making human fleas more or less suitable as a plague factor. So these things might have changed over time. So it could be that it was less of an issue back then, so they wouldn't have known that it was human fleas uh, and it might have been right there. And what made you kind of suspect or hypothesize human fleas for the second pandemic, the, the, the Black Death portion? So for the Black Death uh, and uh, the second pandemic, there's been years and years of discussions between different plague historians where they, uh, before actually people managed to uh, isolate the bacterium from corpses from the second pandemic, and there was a large discussion on whether or not the second pandemic was actually plague or, was it, or whether it was a different disease. Because there were these huge differences in immortality, like the 30, 33% versus 1%. It just seemed like it, yeah, the, the, the symptoms were the same, but the difference in mortality was so high that people thought it must have been a different disease. They just looked the same. So this was uh, a big fight between historians, uh, mostly historians, I guess, because there was not that much other data to work with except the historical records. Uh, but when uh, ancient DNA techniques became more uh, more fine-tuned, uh, people actually managed to get DNA from uh, the bacterium from corpses from the Middle Ages. So that sort of settled it. Okay, it was plague. It was the same plague we have today. So, But then we still had this problem of explaining why was plague back then so much more lethal than plague now? And one of the suggestions that people made was that, it, uh, that several historians have made was now it was spread by human lice or human fleas. So that is something we thought, okay, well, let's try and model this. Let's try and uh, compare two different models. When we, one where we let plague spread by rats, one where we let plague spread by fleas, and for good measure, also one where we let plague spread uh, from human to human through the air. Right. So in your particular study, you did not go in and grab plague bacteria from, you know, old victims. Instead, you did create this model. And it's called a Susceptible Infectious Recovered Model or SIR model. Can mm -hmm. you describe how exactly that model works? Yeah. So the, uh, it is easier than it actually looks if you look in papers and you see, see a set of equations. What you're doing is you categorize your population into different groups. And at the beginning of an outbreak, you would categorize everybody as being healthy, susceptible. Um, and then you sort of let a clock tick. And then every day you say, okay, how many people from the susceptible group do we expect to have been, become ill now, given that we know how many people, ill people we already had? So if we start with one ill person and we have 99 healthy persons, then we give a calculation on what is the rate with which healthy people will convert into ill people. 
And we also have a rate in which health, uh, uh, in the speed with which inf infected people convert into dead people or into recovered people. And so every, every day in the model, we sort of recalculate where everybody should be in which compartment uh, until the epidemic is sort of over and most people are either recovered uh, or dead. So this is fairly simple. And what I described now is for the most simple of the models we use. The moment you have fleas or rats and fleas in there, you have a bunch more compartments. You have healthy rats, you have healthy humans, infected rats, infected humans. And when an infected rat dies, um, some of the fleas will try to uh, create more infected humans from healthy humans. So in a way, it's sort of a bookkeeping that we're doing where we're moving people between compartments based on the, the actual number of infected we already have in the other compartments. And you mentioned that the infected rats also die. So when rats get plague, they get sick? Yeah. Okay. They don't like it. <laughs> I'm sure that's a mild statement. <laughs> um, yeah, you, I think I, I read somewhere that um, in some outbreaks of the plague during the third pandemic, part of the reason they made a connection was because of things called rat falls. Yeah. Which is when a so the, huge pile of rats die. <laughs> so this is, uh, so you have two of, when people think of rats, there's basically two species, the black rat, uh, which is a bit smaller and long tail. And the brown rat, which is a bit thicker and a shorter tail and a bigger rat. Uh, the brown rat is the big one, but the black rat, rat is the one that climbs. So it's also known as a roof rat. Uh, and rat falls is when the rats are falling out of your roof down <laughs> because they died of plague. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's terrible, but. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a graphic image. <laughs> it's raining rats. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, you were talking about the SIR model, and you had this model made a little more complex by the infected rats, and then you compared different vector models, so different ways of getting the plague, and you kind mm -hmm. of compared them to each other. Which models were you comparing? So um, we compared one model where uh, there was no animals involved. It's just humans infecting other humans through the air. So that's the uh, pneumonic plague model. Then we had a model where, um, more the classical model, the rat-borne model, so as, so as people understand the third pandemic. So this is where uh, your rats gets plague. Uh, when rats die, their fleas uh, are infected and try to find human hosts. And then humans get plague directly from the rat fleas, so there's no human fleas involved. And then the third model is where humans have fleas, and then uh, the plague goes from human to fleas to human to flea to human to flea, and so on. So those are the three models we compared to each other. And those models were kind of populated, not by just, you know, random computer data, but you were actually looking through death records um, yeah. from the pandemics. Where did you get these? Uh, Google. No, but uh, <laughs> so in part, we know that they are there because some of the most famous examples have been uh, wide published. You have for London in the UK, you have the bills of mortality, which are quite famous where every week they describe how many people died of anything. And it, uh, during a plague pandemic, then the largest number every week is just the plague, the number of people that died of plague. And you see this just increase week by week by week until the epidemic sort of reaches its peak and then slows down again to lower numbers. That is similar to how now uh, uh, flu, uh, yeah, influenza is reported, where you also get sort of your numbers per week. And these things exist not for just for London, but for many cities in Europe. Uh, it's just a public health uh, institute from that time. We're also collecting data and trying to just figure out and describe what was happening. 
and this you can still find uh, either in Google Books. So Google is quite good at finding just uh, if you search for plague and the city and the year you're interested in, you might find some old reports from 1700 or 1600 just describing the local plague outbreak. And how many sets of death records did you end up going through for this paper? So I think it's about 80, 19 different, 80 or 90 different cities we found death records for. But for many of them, they were uh, compiled into monthly records. And that is a bit of sort of uh, not enough information left to see. So that's either historians that already collected the data and then published it in a book. But for them, it was less important of showing exactly week by week how many uh, people died, but more like an overall when was the peak of the epidemic. And that you can see with monthly data as well. But there were other sources were way more precise uh, from daily to weekly data. And so we use those. Right, because your model you know, month to month is not going to show transmission differences very well. No, so the the, the, mo- the different the three different models can't really exting- distinguish them. We really need the shape of this epidemic in a way to decide which of the models does best. Uh, and that works. Just imagine for the red model, it's easiest to imagine the, the plague is going through the red population underneath the city. And when it sort of has exhausted the whole population of rats, then these fleas uh, are forced to go up and search for humans. So then you get uh, then you get like a short burst of plague happening throughout town, and that would be a very sharp peak. Uh, well, for human fleas, uh, we would we visualize it now as sort of okay, plague grows to town with uh, spreading from human to human, flea to human. But when we're sort of running short on on humans that are still susceptible, these fleas can carry plague for a while bit with them. So they are not, uh, they would still be around in the house and just wait for somebody else to actually get into the house and then jump on this human. So you get a long tail at the end of the epidemic where infections still happen, but less and less of them. So you, we really need these different uh, differences in shape to be visible in the mortality data. Uh, and then, then you get differences in how well the model can actually describe these different shapes. And that we use to compare which model was doing best. Okay. And, and using your models, you showed that it had that, that long tail associated with human fleas. Is that, is that right? Sometimes it was, sometimes it's easier visible, but, uh, so, um, sometimes there's just also stuff happening like, uh, uh, yeah, like a revolt half, halfway during the epidemic or like, uh, like an army showing up on the doorstep of a city because Europe in the Middle Ages had wars all the time. So sometimes the pattern is not actually that clear or people stopped recording plague before actually the end of the epidemic. So these models are uh, better at distinguishing which uh, which model fits best to which uh, set of data than what I just described, what I could do by eye. But in some of the cases, like uh, one example would be Florence, you do see this long, this long tail quite clearly. And in other cases, it's harder to decide, but then we're happy to have uh, just basically computer algorithms deciding trying to fit best and then describing how well the fit is. Okay, so, but from the tails that you saw in your model, it appears that the human fleas may have paid, played a bigger role here than the rats and their fleas? Yeah, that's, uh, so we, we tested for nine different uh, cities in Europe, sort of spaced out over the whole, the whole pandemic, uh, over the whole 1400 to 1900, and uh, across Europe, and just uh, took these nine cities and for each of the nine cities, ran the three models, and then um, uh, used um, like a, yeah, it's a computational measure, this a measure to a mathematical measure to describe how well the fit is that the model could achieve to match the mortality data, and that we use to compare these uh, 
these outbreaks. So does this exonerate the rats? Do the rats and their fleas still play a role here or are they, are they clean? So uh, I'm still guessing and maybe hoping that there's some places in Europe where they, you actually did have rat outbreaks, but the, uh, that might be, so there's like 9,000 known outbreaks of plague in Europe during the middle ages. So with the nine we picked, we might've just only found the most common way it happens. Uh, and there might have been outbreaks that were smaller and that we didn't pick up, uh, that just didn't find in the historical records. Those might have been more red outbreaks. So I can, I would say we have nine out of 9,000 we've tested. So, and it's pretty good. It's pretty sure that there are, uh, it's a pretty good case for that, uh, flea borne transmission. Human fleas was actually a thing in the Middle Ages, but I'm not really sure, really ready yet to say, okay, there were no red outbreaks in Europe. But we haven't found them. We're looking if we can find like uh, like more historical descriptions saying, oh, yeah, we had really much rats this year, this year. And this is our plague data. And that would be a good case to go and look at that city specifically and uh, try to see if the models there do prefer the rat model over the other two modes of transmission. But the real takeaway here is that humans are covered in fleas and gross. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if it's grosser than later on. but uh, <laughs> Well, at least yeah, we have fewer fleas now. Yeah, no, no, no. But even if you talk with, like, if you can find grand uh, grandparents somewhere, uh, somewhere in the rural sites, they might say, "Oh, I got terrible fleas when I was a kid. It was horrible." So that's not that long ago yet. Uh, it's like uh, early, what is it? Early nineteenth, early twentieth century. People were still having fleas uh, these days. Yeah, way less. But uh, back then, it was it was quite normal for a long time. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but a previous paper of yours looked at the role of climate in the spread of plague. What does climate have to do with plague? So the climate has a lot to do with plague in terms of uh, where plague lives naturally. If you look at maps, also from this paper, but just uh, also from WHO, there's a lot of plague outside in Central Asia, for example. Anything that's like a semi-arid desert or some uh, mountain meadows or steppe might have rodents that carry uh, carry the plague. And these landscapes are quite sensitive to how much uh, rainfall there is between years. So if you have a few years of nice rainfall, uh, the number of rodents on these uh, on these deserts are going to be multiplying very very rapidly to high numbers. Um, and then we found a pattern where if you if you have a few good years and then you have uh, suddenly a drought hitting again. Uh, then you have way too many rodents for the ecosystem to support. These rodents die off massively and their fleas go looking for anything that moves to uh, keep uh, their blood feeding going. So they'll jump on uh, a lot of camels and a lot of humans passing through the area and on, on caravans. So this might actually uh, have been a way in which uh, plague got from wildlife into uh, caravans and these caravans could have transported to Europe. Uh, the paper originally tried to find sort of the same mechanism um, that I described for wildlife in Central Asia, but then see if we could find any kind of sign of wildlife in Europe. So we looked at Europe, European climates uh, as recorded by tree rings. Trees grow better when there is enough water and there's not enough heat. So And enough water and enough heat gives more plants and rodents eat plants, so they'll be happy as well. So the, we were looking for similar patterns as we know from Central Asia to have happened in Europeans, uh, Europe's trees in the past, and then try to tie it to European outbreaks, see if we could just find the region in Europe from which we saw plague. If we could find a region in Europe where we just kept on seeing plague starting in that area, 
without knowing why it started there. Because that might have been like a, a hidden signal that there was a wildlife plague in Europe in the Middle Ages. And the paper, we couldn't find it. So other people have tried after it, and they also have trouble finding it. And then now this paper that we just published it might be sort of an explanation from uh, for, yeah, we might not have needed a wildlife reservoir in Europe because the human fleas seem to have done a good job in transporting it across Europe. So the humans were the reservoir instead of the rats. In a way, yeah. And, uh, one of the questions we're now looking into is uh, um, how long are humans sort of capable of uh, passing plague around in Europe? Is it something they can do for years and years and years? Or is it something that works for a while, but then fizzles out by chance after 20 or 50 years? Trying to see sort of what is the duration you can get a can keep a plague epidemic going if you just assume that there's only humans there. Now, one of the things I loved about that paper is that you mentioned you com- you connected tree rings and plague, which are two mm. things I never ever thought would go together. <laughs> no, yeah. There, so that if you look, if if you would like to model like what happened in the wildlife in the in the historic past, yeah, temperature records go back at most to seventeen hundred something, and it's just for a single places like in Italy or in Barcelona that you have all the temperature records. People just didn't measure temperature yet, or uh, there's some descriptions of how much rain there was in a year or in a month, but not in a way that, that I can turn into a prediction of how much rodents there were in uh, in medieval Europe or medieval Asia. But what goes back all this way, and it goes back like almost 10,000 years, I think, are, are tree ring records. So they take trees that are, some trees get almost a thousand years old, which is amazing. And then you have a thousand years of, of tree rings saying, okay, this is a good year for tree. This is a bad year for trees. This is a good year for tree. And this is a bad year for tree. And if this tree is standing somewhere high up in a mountain, that says something about temperature. If a tree is standing in a desert, it says something about how much rainfall there was that year. Um, and if you can't find, you can't find trees that are older than much than a thousand years or something in Europe, but then you can find, uh, old wood used in, in buildings or used in, uh, wells dug into the earth, uh, or fossilized wood. And you sort of connect these tree rings from, uh, living trees to fossilized wood trees until you go all the way back to the middle ages. So you have a yeah, sort of a climate record that goes back that far. And this is one of the few records that there's actually per year gives you a little bit of an idea how cold or how wet or it was. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And then you found that it wasn't wet years or dry years. It was the wet years or dry years following. It was the dry years following wet years. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, you needed to have a sufficient sort of uh, cumulative effect of a few wet years together, uh, followed by a really dry year. So that sort of you get a shock into the ecosystem where you first built up nice uh nice circumstances for rodents populations to grow in numbers and then you just give a sudden drought and then the population will collapse and this starts spreading to to other hosts well boris thank you so much for chatting with us i'm now going to keep an eye out for dry years and falls of rats (laughs) from my roof yeah and please see if you get any we've linked to more information about boris schmidt's papers and the black death at scienceforthepeople.ca we've talked about the human side but now it's time to walk on the wild side and talk about plague and animals and how that impacts people today stay tuned while we take a break we thought we'd recommend another podcast you might like if you like science for the people we think you'll also like people behind the science We here at Science for the People tend to talk to scientists about their work, but People Behind the Science talks about the, you know, people. 
behind the science. What are scientists into? What books do they read? What do they like? What inspires them? What made them become a scientist in the first place? People behind the science show scientists as humans, and that might be the most inspiring thing of all. This week, I'd like to recommend the People Behind the Science episode with Bruce Beeler. He's an ornithologist and naturalist, and as I'm kind of getting into birds in a big way right now, I really enjoyed hearing from him. He even likes woodpeckers, just like me. Check it out. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. As we've just heard, rats get a lot of blame for plague, and some of that might be undeserved. But it also might come as a surprise that plague is not always a human disease. In fact, a good bout of plague can have drastic effects on animal populations, sweeping through them like the Black Death through Europe. And some of those animal populations aren't medieval rats. Instead, they might be more adorable things, like prairie dogs. To talk us through how prairie dogs get the plague is Lauren Kassensackett, an evolutionary biologist at the University of South Florida. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And I wanted to start by asking, I guess, a basic question. You study prairie dogs. Why are you into prairie dogs? (laughs) That's a good question. I think they're a really good model for the disease questions that I'm interested in. And they're sort of, although, as you mentioned, they're adorable. uh, They're they're helpful at answering questions about how diseases work in wildlife. And that can also contribute to our understanding of how they work in humans. And you've published several papers on plague specifically. Why are you interested in bubonic plague? Well, it's an interesting disease for a lot of reasons. And one of one of them is, you know, the curb appeal, because as you mentioned, it's something that we think of as being this medieval disease. It doesn't exist anymore. Surely we have uh, risen to technological advancement that can bring us beyond bubonic plague. But no, it's still around and it's in wildlife and occasionally in humans. And uh, it's interesting because to me, because it was introduced to North America. And so it has really different effects on North American wildlife than it does in wildlife in its native range in Asia. And you were talking a little bit about how people think of plague as a human disease. Obviously, prairie dogs get it too. And of course, rats get it. How Mm -hmm. many different species can get the plague? Well, hundreds that we know of. I would say most mammals that that we're aware of can actually get it, and not all of them become deathly ill. Some are are more sort of resistant or tolerant to it, while others on the other end of the spectrum, like prairie dogs, are extremely susceptible. And of course, it's not just a disease of mammals, although mammals are the primary uh, vertebrates that get infected, but it's also in some sense a disease of fleas, which are the uh, the vector that transmits plague from mammal to mammal. And so it can infect, who, who knows, probably somebody, how many species of fleas in addition to all of the at least hundreds of species of mammals. And you mentioned this a little bit, some species are more susceptible than others. Are there species of mammals who can get the plague transmitted to them who have basically no symptoms or do all mammals eventually die of plague? Yeah, there are mammals that don't seem to have symptoms. And it's interesting because some of them are, are maybe more predictable animals that that have good immune systems like scavengers so a lot of canids are thought to be more tolerant to the to the disease they don't exhibit a lot of symptoms when they're uh, infected but 
Others like prairie dogs or other squirrels get have a lot of symptoms. But there are, are also things that are not scavengers and that are very closely related to prairie dogs like other species of ground squirrels that for some reason don't appear to have any symptoms whatsoever. So it's there are a lot of interesting scientific puzzles and I, I don't think we've figured out qu- yet quite why some species are so much more susceptible than others. And you mentioned earlier that prairie dogs are extremely susceptible to plague, like super susceptible. Why? Well, I I think that there's multiple answers to that question. It's kind of an intersection of a lot of unfortunate events for prairie dogs. One reason that's a big component is that they don't have this shared evolutionary history. So plague is native to, well, I shouldn't say plague, the pathogen Yersinia pestis that causes plague is a bacterium, and it's native to Asia. And so a lot of the Asian mammals have co-evolved in a sense with plague, whereas the animals in North America don't have that that shared history. Um, the the bacterium was introduced to North America around 1900, and so it's been a very short time in evolutionary time scale during which these animals have been in contact with plague. The other thing that prairie dogs have as a somewhat unique trait is that they're very social and they form really large congregations of individuals. A colony can have hundreds or thousands of individuals. And so there's, they can reach really large population sizes and somewhat high population density. They also live underground in burrows and they're, they're in constant contact with each other and they're in constant proximity to fleas. And so they're, not only are they kind of contacting each other more often than a, a solitary species, but once one of them gets plague, they're much more likely to contract it from another one because they're they're close together. And the fleas can jump from a dead animal to a live animal very easily when they're in such close proximity. So prairie dogs are really susceptible to plague because they have friends. Yeah, friends and family will get you every time. Introverts unite. <laughs> now you've said they're very susceptible how susceptible is susceptible like how many of them will die when plague is going around that is also an excellent question when we observe prairie dog populations in the wild one reason they're a, a good system for studying plague is that they're such a gregarious species that they're the their population patterns are really easy to observe so if you go out on a normal day you know, I said there are hundreds or thousands of prairie dogs in a colony. They're making a ruckus. They're they're chirping at each other when they see predators. They're running around and foraging. And when plague has come through, there's just nobody there anymore. And so it the the pathogen seems to spread very quickly once it comes through. And usually only a few prairie dogs will survive. Uh, and we don't ex- we don't know for sure if they're surviving per se, as in they were infected and they're resistant, or if they somehow managed to escape exposure. Maybe they never got a flea bite. Maybe they were the introverts of the prairie dog world, and they didn't have a lot of contact with each other. We're not sure about that yet. But as far as we can tell, almost everyone who gets infected is eventually going to succumb in the wild. And you mentioned that plague well, Yersinia pestis, the bacterium that causes the plague, is particularly native to Asia. Um, Mm -hmm. How did plague get to prairie dogs? Well, it was introduced accidentally, like many pathogens and other species. It was introduced on ships that came to San Francisco 
and the there were rat stowaways on the ships and there were flea i guess flea stowaways on the rats and so either the rats or the fleas had plague at some point in one of these arrivals into california and so then plague became established in on the west coast and since then it's been moving slowly eastward and it basically once it arrived in the range of prairie dogs you know colorado arizona new mexico area is when it it infected plagues and then became i mean infected prairie dogs and then became endemic in that in that species do we know what year that was because i think a lot of people think of plague as as like in the past (laughs) right that's right yeah so i mean it started it was introduced in i believe 1901 right around the turn of the century and it just started spreading eastward pretty soon after that and so depending on where in the west you're talking about it it arrived in prairie dog populations in the 1930s 40s and 50s wow and you decided to look at what happens to prairie dogs when they get the plague especially in regard to how it might affect their sex lives, their genetic (laughs) offspring. Why might scientists, I found it very interesting that your papers noted that scientists assumed that after plague, prairie dogs would have more inbreeding. Mm -hmm. Why would scientists assume this? Well, especially in the case of prairie dogs, where we just see these massive population extirpations, Uh, In the case of maybe there are three prairie dogs remaining after a plague outbreak, you would kind of expect that those three prairie dogs have no other choice but to mate with each other. And then when you have three or some small number of individuals, that's going to automatically lead to inbreeding. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Lack of choice dooms everybody. (laughs) Right. So it's sort of inbreeding is just an inevitable consequence of small populations. And when the populations undergo these crashes, that's that's an unavoidable consequence. And so you decided to look at prairie dog colonies that might have suffered these crashes. How did you find these prairie dog colonies and how did they get the plague? Like you didn't you didn't give prairie dogs plague. <laughs> no, okay. we're not allowed to do that for for good reason. Um it was I hate to say that it was fortuitous because it clearly wasn't fortuitous for the prairie dogs, but it was fortuitous for for me during my dissertation because there had been a, a long-term prairie dog and plague ecology project going on with other scientists at the University of Colorado. And just right about when I started my my graduate studies, there was a big plague outbreak in Boulder County, where this long-term study site was. And so I was able to observe before, kind of during and after a plague epidemic. Lucky you. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you went out and you studied these prairie dogs what did you what did you do exactly how did you study them um are you asking how i caught them how you know how we got the data i'm leading up to that yeah i want to know how you trap prairie dogs for science it's a fun story so um (laughs) they're actually you know they're prairie dogs are rodents and so you would think it would be really easy to outsmart them just catch them and it's sort of demoralizing to learn that that's not the case that you can actually be outsmarted by a rodent but for the most part uh we we can catch a lot of them by placing live traps out on their colonies and they're very wary so they sometimes take a few days to get used to the fact that there's a trap there and so we we wire the trap open and put bait in it so that they can learn that they can go in the trap in and out freely and get free food. 
And then once they're accustomed to the traps, we actually set them. So, you know, three days or a week or something later. And we'll, once we've caught them, we, we bring them back to our little table and we, we anesthetize them because they're, they're ferocious. <laughs> they look cute, but they're, they're ferocious. They, they bite and claw like the best of them. And so once they're anesthetized, we can collect all their fleas. We take blood and we take just a little bit of ear. It's an ear punch designed for rodent ears that gives us tissue for DNA analysis. Okay. And so then when they're, they wake back up. bites have you suffered? Ooh, <laughs> several. I I haven't attempted to count it, but um, it's usually when when I'm releasing the prairie dogs, and so you sometimes you get caught in thunderstorms or there's inclement weather or things like that, and you have to hurry a little bit. And I there was at least one time when I had a bunch of traps. I don't know. I was carrying four or five back to the sites where we had caught them, and one of them bit me through the trap on my stomach. And of Ow. course, your first reaction is to want to chuck the little thing in in anger and retaliation, but you can't do that. So you just uh, have to grin and bear it. <laughs> do you have a but scar now? No, no. They're they bite hard, but they're not they're not that bad. It's nothing like getting a dog bite or something. So you took uh, genetic tissue samples from these ear punches and then, and then what happened? Well, then we, we take them back to the lab and extract DNA and we used um, microsatellite markers, which are just types of neutral DNA that evolve relatively quickly. And so you can see short time scale differences among populations, for instance. And so we compared the amount of genetic diversity before a plague outbreak to after recolonization, which is just when when a, a colony goes extinct, at some point thereafter, it'll there will be immigrants from elsewhere that will repopulate that colony. Okay. And so you mentioned also that you kind of denuded them of fleas, you took their <laughs> fleas, what were the fleas for? Well, there's a lot of things that we can do from with those data. And so one of the one of the other graduate students in the department at the University of Colorado was trying to understand if fleas move among colonies at the same rate as prairie dogs, or are they being kind of trafficked by carnivores or other species that are moving the fleas more than prairie dogs themselves. Um, so that was that's one reason we look at fleas. We can also test whether the fleas themselves are infected with plague. And so one thing that's really difficult about studying plague in prairie dogs is that it's so ephemeral. It comes in and it can wipe out an entire colony in just a couple of weeks. Sometimes it takes longer, but sometimes it's really quick. And so if you're not already there trapping, it can be really difficult to actually catch catch it in the act but fleas can sometimes persist for longer with with the bacterium and so we can we can determine whether there's there's yersinia pestis in the system that we haven't found in the prairie dogs themselves and so here you are collecting these prairie dogs that may or may not be infested with plague and <laughs> denuding them with fleas that may or may not be infested with plague have you ever had a, a close brush with plague well i don't know um i've definitely gotten sick before but i was not the hospital did not test me for plague unfortunately um but you know we take a lot of precautions and basically the main way that we could get exposed to plague is the same way actually that you or any other person who is not actively catching prairie dogs could get exposed and that's by the flea bites and so 
you know, if a lot of, well, I'll tell you what we did first. So we, in order to protect against flea bites, we wear long sleeves, long pants, long everything, which is quite uncomfortable when it's a hundred degrees outside, but it's worth it. Um, and so that, that pretty much protects against the fleas biting us. If they do jump on, they just, they, there's no skin, there's nothing they're interested in biting. And so they'll jump back onto the prairie dogs. But you did get sick and they didn't test you for playing. It was, it was a poor decision on their part. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> um, so you were looking at plague and you were looking at how it might affect genetic diversity and you were kind of looking to see if it would cause inbreeding. What did you end up finding? Well, I found something really that was really surprising to me. And that was that there really were no observed, there was no observed increase in inbreeding at all. And in fact, there was a, in many colonies, there was an increase in genetic diversity and a decrease in inbreeding. And I was really perplexed about this. And I, I concluded in part that I think that the reason for that was one of the reasons is that in Boulder County, anyway, it's a, fairly fragmented landscape with lots of moderate urbanization and agricultural land use and parks and all sorts of things. And as a result of that that fragmentation, I believe that plague moved relatively slowly through the through the study area. And so there were always some colonies that were sort of reserves that still had prairie dogs in them that ha- were not extinct. And so when one colony went extinct, there was still another one somewhat nearby that could end up repopulating that that first extinct colony. And so as a result of that, the slow speed of plague moving and the fact that there are lots of other colonies nearby to repopulate, there was the county at a whole, Boulder County, was able to retain the amount of genetic diversity that was previously there in prairie dogs. And you mentioned that one of your colleagues was studying the fleas. Um, And you've also done some studies on the fleas. (laughs) Why (laughs) is it important to study fleas? That's a a good question. And I've kind of become a convert in recent years in that I, the mammals are cuter. I mean, everybody is sort of more drawn to a fuzzy thing than a flea. But the fleas are such an interesting part of the story that we know so little about. And part of that, that they're this missing link in between how an how the pathogen gets from one individual to another. Of course, it can be transmitted directly, but the primary way that plague is transmitted is through the flea. And so it's interesting for a lot of reasons, including that the pathogen has to adapt to living inside the flea, which is not necessarily very good conditions. It's in a a small arthropod pool of blood, basically, and the arthropod is dependent on a host. And so there are interesting questions about adaptation. There are also interesting questions about how different fleas have themselves adapted to the pathogen. Some flea species are really good at transmitting plague and other flea species are less good at transmitting plague. And there's just, we, we just know much less about that component of the system than we do about the, the mammals. When you say that some fleas are, are good at transmitting plague, do you mean they do it more frequently or like once the flea gets the plague, it's more likely to transmit or? The, 
That's right. Once it once it becomes infected, it's more likely to transmit. And there are different there are different hypotheses about why some fleas are better at this than others, including some fleas actually in some fleas, the Yersinia bacteria will form a little biofilm and prevent the flea from swallowing. And so it has to actually try harder to feed because it can't get it can't swallow any of its food. And so that's one hypothesis about why one species might be better than than others. Yikes. I mean, it's just bad for everybody. It is. Usually when you <laughs> think about plague, you kind of assume the fleas are getting away with something, but <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> now, you mentioned that all prairie dogs have fleas. That's kind of, you know, pretty much. Thing. Yeah. But some have more than others. Why does the number of fleas matter? <laughs> Well, it, it matters ultimately because if a prairie dog has zero fleas or one flea, it's much less likely to be exposed to not only plague, but any other pathogens that the fleas contain than a prairie dog that has, say, 150 fleas. And we've seen both ends of the spectrum. There are prairie dogs that have zero fleas, and oftentimes these are the young, probably because they're being groomed really well by their mothers. And we've seen prairie dogs that have hundreds of fleas. It's quite disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. And you actually just published a study where, for science, you collected more than 23,000 fleas. That's right. I had a lot of help, though. It wasn't just me. But yes, I've collected my fair share of fleas. So how how does one do that? Like, where do you store them? Where are these fleas now? Are they still around? <laughs> yep, they're around. They're in little tubes in my lab. You you start by, once the prairie dog is anesthetized, you, you use forceps or tweezers to pull the fleas off. And depending on how you anesthetize the prairie dog, the fleas usually are still pretty awake. And so they're jumping around and trying to escape you. And it's really pretty ridiculous to think that science in any sense could involve a person chasing fleas with tweezers, but we do that. And (laughs) (laughs) once we collect them, we we store them in ethanol and then which preserves the, the DNA and the flea morphology. And then we can bring them back to the lab and do whatever we want with them. I mean, whatever we want scientifically. <laughs> I I just realized that's the title of your memoir, Chasing Fleas with Tweezers and Other Stories. <laughs> <laughs> now, you did this for a reason. You were trying to actually predict how many fleas were on a prairie dog. And obviously you cannot predict how many fleas are on a prairie dog based on how much the prairie dogs bathe because showers in a prairie dog (laughs) colony are very few and far between. What ended up predicting flea numbers? Well, it seems to be largely climatic fluctuations within a colony. It's really difficult to predict the numbers on different individuals. And people have, have done this in different systems in other mammalian hosts with fleas and other mammalian hosts with ticks and mites and that sort of thing and and non-mammalian hosts. And in some systems, it seems like the males have a lot more fleas and there are hypotheses about that. In other systems, that doesn't really hold and age is a really important factor where maybe all the older animals have more fleas. But it's not really... There are no explanations that really convincingly explain these patterns across systems. And so that's one of the reasons I I decided to use this large data set that was collected by 
mostly other people, and I did some of it, <laughs> um, to try to figure out if if I could kind of tease apart the, the age and the sex and the other possible contributors to what explains flea aggregation. And the thing that was really interesting to me is there's not even really a lot of consistency from year to year in how many fleas a prairie dog has. And so that implied to me that it can't really be something intrinsic about the host, because if it was something intrinsic about the host, then the prairie dogs with lots of fleas one year would have lots of fleas the next year. And that just wasn't wasn't the case. And so I think that it's largely driven by stochastic things that maybe we're not measuring that well. Climate is certainly a big player in how many fleas are in a, a whole population every year. Um, but it also can can play a role by how healthy the prairie dogs are under different different weather patterns. And so some of our my colleagues in Fort Collins have done some good work that's shown that if prairie dogs have really good body condition because it's a wet year and there's lots of vegetation, then they can fight off fleas better. And so it's it, it this is a long-winded way of saying that it's complicated and it's probably some mix of environmental factors, stochasticity, and then what the host is doing. Is there danger to the prairie dog's survival as a species from plague? Potentially. Um, there's. It, it seems that so far there has been enough recolonization from not only at a small scale like Boulder County, but across the, the range of prairie dogs, and I should say multiple species of prairie dogs. It seems like they're not in danger strictly from going extinct from plague, but certainly plague interacts with things like habitat loss and a whole set of other things that prairie dogs are also susceptible to. Um, and so, so far, the official, they've, they've been candidates for listing under the Endangered Species Act several times, multiple species of prairie dogs have. And the, the consensus so far has been, yes, this is a threat, but it does not threaten extinction immediately. Well, I and guess good. <laughs> there's another enticing bit of information, which is that a small number of prairie dogs seem to be resistant to plague. And there have been a couple of different people who have, have come to this conclusion separately based on different types of evidence. So when I was out sampling in, in Boulder County 10 or so years ago, I noticed that about six or seven prairie dogs had produced antibodies to plague, which showed that they had been exposed to plague. And then those individuals actually survived for another year. And so they were exposed and they survived, which meant they exhibited some degree of resistance. And there have been other studies that have corroborated this idea, both in the field and in lab experimental infections. And so one of the things that we're, we're trying to do, collaborators and I, is trying to understand how widespread resistance is. Um, why hasn't it spread through the entire range of prairie dogs yet? Why isn't why aren't all prairie dogs resistant? Um, and how long resistance has been around in the landscape, as well as what the genetic basis is of resistance? Well, I'm very curious to see what you come up with. Lauren, thank you so you much too. for being here with us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. We've linked to more information about Lauren Kassensackett's work and possibly a few gratuitous photos of prairie dogs at <laughs> scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Subscribe to the show, follow us around, leave us a friendly comment, and we've got a link to Patreon. Make sure to sign up for our awesome new project to get your scientist's birthday card in the mail. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. 
Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>